Hey, Matt, uh, thank you for coming in. You have a really interesting background. I could see that you're with Apollo, so you're very much an investor and you have that kind of uh, um, sort of background, but also you're an officer in the armed forces as a captain in the Air Force, which I think is really interesting. And and uh, you started working in finance and, and this idea of swimming the English Channel, it just seems to all fit, right? Uh, and now you're you're in this really disruptive space. So we're going to mine some of that in this interactive conversation we have today. So thank you for coming in. Well, thanks very much for taking time with me. I very much appreciate it. And so does all of QCWare. So thanks a lot. So Matt, you know, my audience is pretty diverse. I, I'm definitely, I have a scientist and technical people in the audience, but really every time I do measurement, the number one uh, members who actually read my stuff or see the interviews are typically CEOs and founders, and then investors, and then board members, and then the professors are actually below that. So I, I find that really interesting. Anyways, so it's a, it's quite a diverse audience, and they're always curious. You know, you have this marvelous history. You know, what were maybe two or three inflection points that made this wonderful person you are today? Well, that's that's an extremely generous and maybe over generous uh, thing to say. And as you said, this is completely unscripted. So when you ask these questions, I guess I can consider myself reclining on a psychiatrist's uh, <laughs> comfortable couch in Vienna, Austria, in 1927. So let's let's put us there, okay? So uh, <laughs> that's just fine. Um, so in terms of like working backwards from QCWare, um, I guess the, a couple of things, I, I grew up in Minnesota and I think everything I consider about the world and uh, the right way to do things probably comes from there. Uh, and that, you know, if you look at QCWare, when we start talking about our company, uh, I think some of that will come through and and it's very distinct probably it's very different than the average silicon valley company the way we operate and 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 build our built up the company um and then my time in the military was certainly you know i think with everybody the first professional experience that a person has the very first one i've always heard tends to be the most formative thing the thing that really sets the tone for your professional life not your sort of personal life or you know your core um, and that certainly was the case for me. So I, I love public service. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I really love the mission of the Air Force and the Armed Forces. And I, I really love the people that I worked with. And throughout the rest of my life, I always wanted to be attached to things that felt meaningful and strategic. And uh, and I wanted to work with people that I felt really aligned with and, and something that felt bigger than myself. And... Um, then, you know, if you fast forward past the military time, my time in, as you said, in principal investing and, and banking, um, certainly this was extremely international as well, as was the military. But there was this edge on it. In particular, particularly, you know, when I was with Apollo Management, I think I, I learned from people who had, in my mind, the deepest comprehension of business that I'd ever been exposed to. I'm sure there are people smarter than the founders of Apollo. I'm sure there are. I just had never met anyone else, anyone of that caliber. And this really intrigued me. And um, it's this, you know, employment of kind of reductive logic and, and thinking about uh, like being extremely shrewd. 
So not being afraid to be extremely shrewd and realizing like that's very important as you try to navigate complex situations, uh, being very rational. Um, all of those things were important. What, what I did find when I was there though is um, you can't really build yourself. You're, you're in private equity, you're a representative of capital. You're sitting on the board and in most cases controlling the company that you're invested in, but you're not really doing it yourself. And I thought in my case at Apollo, I'm, while it was you know a lot of financial engineering, the part of it I enjoyed the most was working with management teams. Now, in a lot of cases, this was very contentious because uh, Apollo is known as a distressed debt investor. I mean, that's its core, right? At its at its core DNA, it's a credit shop, as it were, like credit instead of instead of equity, right? And so um, there's a lot of tension there, but I just found it really rewarding. And I found um, there is a way to work with management teams that, um, you know, kind of works. And so when I retired like 11 or 12 years ago from Apollo, I did consider coming back to your point, this is a long-winded way of answering it and not, not me pounding my chest. I'm just explaining how my, my thought process worked. I wanted to be attached to something that had a, a big mission in some public service elements. So I thought, okay, aerospace and defense investing, that 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 category, that vertical, I like it. it. It's it gets me back to my roots. It's something that in the 18 or 19 years I, I was in finance, I didn't have much contact with. Uh, and I wanted to get back to my roots. And at the and then at the same time, you know, thinking with my Apollo hat on, I thought, okay, where's where's the risk? return, the risk reward equation, the most, you know, where can I find the most satisfaction there? And so when I started coming out to Silicon Valley after being in Europe for those nearly 20 years, um, I, I approached it as an outsider and I just said, okay, where is there not a lot of private capital formed yet? And certainly by that point in 2020, 2013, you know, launch vehicles and small satellites and sensors and, and to an extent UAVs were already kind of invested in. But but at that time in Silicon Valley in 2012, NASA Ames Research Center was just standing up a quantum computing group of its own inside of NASA. And I was really lucky to get to meet the person who was the center director at NASA Ames at that time, a guy named Pete Warden, who had been a Brigadier General in the Air Force in the then Space Command. And he and I have a mutual friend. And so Pete was very welcoming and generous with his time. And when I said, hey, Pete, can you introduce me to Cosmogia and NanoSatisfy and all, all these, then all these different startups? He said, yeah, I'll, I'll do all that. And he was really generous, but he said, you should really look at quantum computing. And to make a long story short, I met his team and at that point, I thought, this is it. This is going to be an important technology. It has strategic and geopolitical uh, importance. It is, um, it's going to be, it has the potential to be very powerful. And I can see how this resource could be used in, in a variety of different areas that a lot of uncertainty around it then is now. But that's really what captivated me. It was this um, uncharted territory, this saying, okay, this is truly new. There's a lot of uncut wood here. And, and in a way, coming back to the Apollo thing, I think that's what made the founders of Apollo so powerful. They actually, when they left, left Drexel Burnham Lambert in, in uh, 90, when, it, you know, when Drexel went bankrupt, they were kind of unemployed. And they kind of 
in a lot in a in a great to a great extent they kind of invented this new category of investing called called distressed debt investing or, or financial restructuring debt restructuring and so they had to learn all that and i think when you really have to stretch yourself to learn something that is heretofore kind of completely unknown i think it makes you more broad-minded it um it's an advantage because you're in a space that no one else understands and you took the time to understand it so i was kind of hoping that you know i, I could kind of see the um i could kind of see hey this this feels like something that the founders of apollo might also look at and say okay there might be something here so really from from a business angle i I, I, I'm completely fascinated by the technology and the engineering, completely fascinated, but I really don't have the kind of technical background that could ever allow me to be part of the, of the science and research part of it. So what I just try to do is to understand, okay, what looks like the first opportunity that this technology could be monetized in a really meaningful way. So when I started looking at the technology, that's the, the lens I looked at it through. So long-winded answer, but that's... That's 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 the response. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I can see the story arc of where you were raised, and then you get into the military, and and uh, you're in the Air Force. So the Air Force is sort of on the frontier of things, right? And you're an, you're an officer in the Air Force as well, and you probably have some kind of engineering background. I'm I'm sure, uh, or something related to to be a captain in the air or not? Is that true? Or well, I went to the Air Force Academy. And um, the, the service academies in the U.S. are kind of molded after, in a way, the academies, that concept of, you know, ancient Greece, kind of the whole person development. And so really the core curriculum and the, and the whole thing is, um, yeah, if you look at the curriculum, like two thirds of it is technical, like natural sciences, um, engineering. Uh, and then one third is, you know, you could either take electives in uh in take more engineering or take like softer sciences. And, uh, and I actually elected to go like the softer sciences route or the, the social sciences. I really did because I was, I was fascinated by how the world works, you know, more broadly than just sort of technically, but I guess I have enough basic technical background from that to, um, to kind of get the basics, uh, of software engineering and, uh, hardware engineering and and to be kind of fascinated by the physics but but really what i've had to do and i'm very happy to do it um in our company we were very lucky to recruit some of the real leaders in quantum algorithms and uh and software engineering uh and so that's where really the technology is developed and i i delegate 100 percent and i'm very happily delegated to, to the leadership on the technical side and, and really my job is simply to say, here's where we're trying to get to, like, this is the goal. Let's make sure we're all rowing towards that particular goal. Let's just make sure we're rowing in the same direction. And once I know we are, once I believe that's the case, then it's very easy just to, to let the people who know best how to do things, just get on, get on and run it. But I can still see this sort of disruptive uh, frontier outlier thinking, right? I mean, in the Air Force, you have a technical yeah. program, but a transdisciplinary sort of education, which really, or interdisciplinary, which really fits the way quantum is as well, right? And then and then on Apollo, again, you're broadening your perspective because of all the things that you're exposed to. 
And then you say to yourself, hey, where can I have some kind of impact? Maybe I can go back to my roots. So you you do some of that with NASA and they, they introduce you to quantum computing or this idea in the very early days, by the way, because I know when I used to do keynotes and I was asked by a group of CEOs to introduce them to really uh, frontier tech, I mentioned quantum computing about the same time and they thought I was nuts or crazy. Right. <laughs> but I said, this is something you got to look at. And here uh, you looked at it and then it, it shaped you to get into uh, get involved in quantum computing. So uh, just a, a really interesting journey. So tell me more about uh, QCWare. How did, how did you get introduced to QCWare? What was the journey for QCWare? And, and uh, you know, what's its value uh, that you think? Yeah. What, what are the niches it's, it's uh, tackling and where do you see it from a broader perspective? Okay, so the the kind of grassroots story of that is um, it kind of starts back in Minnesota when I when I left Europe and kind of retired. I, I moved back to Minnesota for a brief period of time, and I was very lucky to meet a person shortly after I came back named KJ Sham, who's a, an MIT trained electrical engineer, happened to be living in Minnesota, and I explained to him that I was traveling around the country looking at new technologies to invest in or get behind or help turn into businesses or try to. And I said, but KJ, I can't assess the technical plausibility of any of these ventures. So how about this? Um, if I pay for your, your, your flights and lodging, yeah. and we agree on some, some economic split of the, the stock of the company that might get founded, that, uh, that we, we cut that deal. And then in addition, you'd have, you know, the role of a, some sort of technical leadership role in the company going forward. And that's how it started. And so KJ would help me when I would uncover something that I thought was interesting. I'd say, hey, does this have merit technically, this, this product idea or whatever it might have been? But, but uh, and he would, he would like render this really clear, just tons of clarity um, on what he, what he said. And I thought, okay, this guy is super smart. And, and then he started traveling with me to Ames Research Center to talk about quantum stuff. And he and I then, as, as we started getting exposed to it, the, the, the threshold question was, okay, let's say we want to start a quantum computing company. You've got this technology stack, various layers of software, various layers of hardware. Where do we want to be? Forget about what psychological attachment we might have to middleware or control software. Forget about it. Let's just say what, what looks like the smartest business thing to do. And then and now we concluded that a lot of value typically gets extracted and created at the application layer of software. We also concluded that software in general is much less capital intensive. <laughs> we do that there's less technology risk. Um, and, uh, and for all of those reasons, we thought, okay, let's, let's go to that layer. And, um, and once we had done that, in parallel, I continued to talk to Ames Research Center and we were very fortunate. Uh, we needed access to quantum computing hardware and to quantum computing expertise, which resided at NASA. And so we, we were able to uh, negotiate and sign a so-called Space Act agreement. We'll put an asterisk there. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's kind of interesting with NASA. And so that necessitated um, having you know, a company incorporated uh, and so to make a long story short, it took about 18 months to execute that contract, primarily because I was so unfamiliar with government contracting, even though I had been an Air Force officer, like it's, 
even more complex on the NASA side, I think, than it was on the Air Force side, um, at least for me. But but that enabled us then to take off. And you know, this it's it's not like NASA was doing us in particular a favor. NASA's one of NASA's missions is to help proliferate, incubate and proliferate new technologies, quantum being one of those. And one way they do that is by partnering with startups or large companies. And I felt I felt a great burden because the only other company at that time that had signed a Space Act agreement on the quantum side was Google. And so Google was the first group to execute one and we were the second. And so I really felt, okay, I've got to make this work. I'm, I'm indebted to them for doing this for us. They're, they've given us a break. They've given us a shot on goal. We have to figure out a way to pay it back. Um, and that, so we set up the company in 2014 by the way, on the Space Act agreement, like what is it? If you recall back in the Sputnik kind of era, at that point, the US government kind of freaked out and they thought we got to catch up, we got to beat them. One mechanism that they put into place, they, there was a Space Act, which was meant to mobilize private industry to start building space technology and to facilitate government agencies working more closely with the private sector. I mean, the Apollo program is the example of, of that successful collaboration. But that contracting vehicle underneath the Space Act uh, is basically a collaborative research and development agreement. So when NASA contracts with private parties to do collaborative research, they, they do it in something called a Space Act agreement. Just a footnote, put it, put it in the notes of the, of the chat here, but that was it. So that, in your question, like what is the genesis of the company, that is it. And then, um, so once we had set up the company, of course, I had no idea what quantum technology and quantum computing was. Uh, but once we had decided that um, that we were going on the software route, it was explained to me that, look, the core of, of software, if you want to have performant applications, you need people who understand and have designed quantum algorithms. And so for the next couple of years, we set out to hire the best quantum out, the best practical quantum algorithms researchers we could find. And so that, and we've continued on that. So we're up to now, we're based in Palo Alto. We have an office in Paris. We've got just under 50 people and uh, probably 70% of them, uh, 60 or 70% are quantum algorithms, researchers, uh, condensed matter physicists, mathematicians, all focused on designing algorithms. The actual code base, the software around it is comparatively trivial. I mean, software is hard, but what's really hard is designing algorithms. Those are the things that direct traffic on quantum hardware. So it, it all starts with the algorithm. And then you, you, you can encode it any high level language you want. Uh, that's kind of like a detail at the end. So we're a software company, but at the core, we develop algorithms. So how do you abstract that underlying quantum hardware so that people can say hey i'm i'm a company somewhere in the world and i want to work with qcware and i've got a problem how does that move from a problem into a solution state for them what's okay. that process how do you onboard uh, people into your into your ecosystem right so we've signed on that note we've signed just over 50 customer contracts so to date since inception of the company and so the question you've asked is kind of a softball question because that's exactly what we do. So our business starts with a customer problem. 
So when we work with companies, and it's at this point, this is still fundamentally a research game. And so the problem that's typically posed will be like from a bank that will say, look, we have a set of compute bottlenecks and these bottlenecks cost us money. And if we can resolve one or more of them with quantum processing, we're going to, you know, the value proposition is we'll, we'll make more profit, we'll generate more revenue, whatever. And so that's, that's where it starts. It starts with an exploration of which of these problems can be solved more quickly with, and it's really a speed thing fundamentally uh, with, with a quantum computer. And so if you look at financial services, for instance, uh, some of our investors, uh, the announced investors, we can say are you know Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, um, uh, DE Shaw. There's another large financial institution that's not disclosed at the moment, but it's a it's a household name. So we kind of have the powerhouses of Wall Street backing us, and and what they're exploring are things along the line of um, pricing, hedging, calibrating models. Those problems are very compute intensive. And so to your point, what, what do we do? Well, we, we understand, we develop an understanding of the mathematical structure of that problem. And we take that problem and we restate it in a quantum representation, a representation where those variables and that data can be mapped onto a quantum algorithm. Once that problem is mapped onto an algorithm, you can then embed that problem onto quantum hardware and execute the problem. That's simplified, but that's kind of the workflow. So what we've spent the last couple of years doing in financial services and in chemistry simulation for materials and pharma, those, those are the two verticals we care about. We spent a ton of time figuring out which problems exist out there that are common across all of the players in those verticals. And what we've done then is built out those algorithms and we're in the in the process of encoding all that in software now, and we'll, we're going to be launching. Um, we've made a, a a sizable amount of revenue, I guess, um, close to you know certainly um, uh, eight figure, just kind of just just north of of eight figures in in cumulative revenue as a company from all these collaborate these research collaborations, and now we are coming out with our first generation of products which will be um, exploiting this technology. So that's, yeah. that's what we do. So I can see, um, you know, you're, you're in the application space. And as you mentioned, you're mapping these real world problems into a form that the quantum computing uh, can optimize it or perform or, or solve it in some way. And, and giving you like a quantum advantage, you know, it's faster or something like that, right? And and that's the value proposition back to the company or to the problem holder. In in terms of the hardware, um, the underlying hardware, do you work with any particular um, vendors out there, or you or with everybody? What's what's your process for working with hardware vendors? In our case, <clears throat> we do work with all hardware vendors, and we'll always continue to do that. We are an independent software vendor. And we do that primarily because that's what our customers want. Our, our customers have the view that there are a set of very high quality quantum computing hardware companies out there. But uh, they also have the view that over the next three to five years, there will be some leapfrogging that will occur uh, between and among these hardware vendors where at any one point of time, 
one of the vendors may have the most powerful system for a particular type of problem. And then six months later, another group may top them and then another group. So because of that, you they, they feel they don't at this point want to be wedded to a particular hardware backend. And so we do support that. The, the ability to um, for users to target different hardware, different quantum backends is really, um, it's really not our, our domain expertise. What, what you will find is that the cloud services giants like Microsoft, Azure, or Amazon, AWS, um, they have all the plumbing and infrastructure that allows the translation of these problems to be uh, shunted off to the different quantum hardware backends. So in answer to your question, we are, we are, it's an overused term, but we're agnostic to any of the hardware backends. Um, and uh, um, I guess the other, the other thing to say is all of those hardware backends right now, none of them are performant. Um, it would not be possible right now for any of the enterprise problems that are swirling around out there, you wouldn't be able to get a speed advantage running any of those production jobs on anybody's quantum hardware. And that's not an insult to any of the quantum hardware vendors. It's just uh, an indication of the, of the challenge, the complexity, the difficulty of building full-scale quantum hardware. So when you have a company like QCWare, certainly we're taking a bet that these very capable and well-run hardware companies are going to get there. And so we are betting on the come that they do by building out these algorithms and software ahead of time. The hedge that we are doing, of course, is this. Um, we have taken this quantum algorithm technology that we've developed and we've reworked it so that it can also run on GPUs. So this first, this next generation of products that I've described that we'll be launching over the next couple of months, we're not, we haven't gone public on this yet, but by the middle of the year, we will have, um, comfortably by the middle of the year, we will have availability for a, a chemistry simulation product and a machine learning product um, that will be performant running on GPUs. And the idea is to provide performance boost to our customer base now with GPUs. And then as quantum hardware gets more mature, we are simply slotting quantum processing into those workflows to give added boost. So that's that's the game plan for QCWare. So would you call this then quantum inspired? It fits into that kind of category of algorithms? Yes. Yes, it does. That's also kind of an overused term, but it, but it is true. Yeah, we are borrowing a lot, a, a lot of the um, quantum algorithms expertise we have developed. We found um, is is helpful because it's a different view, a different approach, a different computing approach to solving problems out there. And in some cases, you can get performance advantages because you're a commercial. Um... Uh, company and uh, there's so much R&D occurring. Do you publish that many papers or it really you can't in some way? How much sharing do you find in the quantum uh, community? So we do publish a lot and we try to, we try to publish in, in um, we try to publish um, articles that will be peer reviewed and get picked up by very strong journals so that we have um uh, a strong presence, uh, a, that we're a strong contributor in publications, so we definitely do. Um, 
And right now, I think most industry players um, would say that we are in kind of a pre-competition phase of the industry. And so there's lots, there's still lots of sharing. There actually about two or three years ago, there was a period where there was some kind of unnecessary tension. And that was when, uh, you know, the capital markets were on fire and uh, everyone was trying to raise big rounds of finance. And there was some, some sniping, understandably, some, uh, you know, some heavy duty competition. I think now though, so it's still pre-competition and it's also because the markets have kind of calmed down and because there's a generally accepted understanding now that every player in this industry has to deliver on what it described as its plan, like, okay, deliver on the plan. You've got to hit your numbers. Um, everyone kind of knows that it's more about them delivering on what they're saying rather than them needing to convince people that they're just like, trust me, we're better than the others. And so, so that kind of sniping has definitely gone away to a great extent. And everyone's hunkering down and saying, okay, we, we got to build this. But it feels very good right now. It's um, it's very collegial. Uh, it, it is. And this is kind of the gold in the halcyon days that everyone will look back on in 20 years. It really will be. It's it's and of course, um, academia is always publishing and always receptive to collaborations with industry and, and really any qualified industry player. So they'll always be the, the bedrock of that sharing and collaboration. Um, but what will happen as soon as um, hardware gets powerful enough and algorithms get a little more developed, then one by one uh, commercial enterprises that think they've got an edge are going to all of a sudden go quiet. They're going to go dark. Right? They're going to they're going to take that technology, protect it as a trade secret, may not even patent it, so that no one ever finds out what they've actually got. And so there there'll be various strategies that players will employ. But for the time being, it's actually uh, it's it's pretty pretty collaborative, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can see the reason for that too, right? Because you've got some very strong, reputable forces or, or voices out there saying it's just it's all hype, <laughs> and and it's uh, you know just people it's the echo chamber amongst themselves and things like that, and yet you have your government. I'm I'm not an American citizen, but you have your U.S. government and you have the U.S. Chips Act, U.S. Chip and Science Act. It's got a big quantum component uh, in there, right? So you, you have these governments doubly done and say, you know what, we believe there's something there and we, we better get involved. And you're also a board member of this Quantum Economic Development Consortium. Can you talk about that? And the naysayers, like, uh, do you think there's any credibility? Or I shouldn't phrase it that way, but what do you think about the na naysayers that out there? And they say, nah, there's nothing there. And it's going to be like 100 years from now or whatever. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, starting with um, Starting with the first Part of your question, which is, um, you've you know stated correctly that the U.S. government has said that quantum technologies are a, a, a critical technology, um, a high priority um, to invest in, and the the Chip Act is just you know one one element, the, the biggest slug of cash. Um, that isn't just obviously the quantum element of that. The quantum piece is is quite small actually, um, but. What you say is true that, you know, when the, what the naysayers might say 
is that you'll never be able to build a large-scale quantum computer. They, they could be right, but I think they would be hard-pressed to identify um, a law of physics that would need to be broken in order to build a larger-scale machine. I think, I think what's actually happening is that um, I think all these are engineering and materials challenges, and it's a whole compendium of them. And, and the, the interesting issue with technology development in the quantum space is, I think if you take let's say a company that's building a quantum computer based on superconducting qubits, for instance. I think kind of when, when you build one qubit, a really high quality qubit, there are a number of challenges that you have to surmount in order to, to build that one qubit. And then when you grow from one qubit to five, there's another brand new set of challenges that you have to study, understand, and, and, and conquer. And then when you go from five to 20, there's another set of problems. So each time you scale up another step, there are new problems that no one on the face of the earth has seen before quite like this. Like these are truly things that are new. You know, nothing is new under the sun. I think a quantum processor is one of those few things that is truly new under the sun. And so that that explains kind of this staggered growth. But I, I don't, I, I think it feels to me like a reasonable bet for the government to say, that look, we, we don't know exactly what the end use cases are, but but there are there are efficiency gains that can be had from this technology, at least on the computing side, and therefore it makes sense to invest further in this. Um, now that if you look at you know the, the U.S. government cares about things from a perspective of U.S. competitiveness and U.S. national security. So they care about, you know, the economic prosperity element, but they also care about the national security side. So on the on the economic prosperity side, you know, they're, they're just kind of starting from a big picture policy thing. Look, technology is becoming embedded into every vertical in industry. It's essential. This is a brand new technology. Let's get behind it. And they're doing it kind of in a measured way. On the national security side, um, it's kind of interesting if you look at, let's say, China and the United States, and you look at their national security policy statements, and what they document is national security priorities, and then, uh, you know, in our case, kind of DOD priorities that trickle down from that. The main, one of the main focuses on is like autonomy and artificial intelligence, and and there is this admittedly right now, kind of a tenuous link, a speculative link between quantum computing and AI and quantum computing and autonomy. But even though it's speculative, I think, uh, you know, both of those governments have said, look, we think this could be an engine to uh, accelerate or to, to, um, to, to develop those tech, you know, AI and, and autonomy. And so I think that really explains why you know, more and more money is is will, will continue to flow into quantum. There, there is, by the way, evidence that evidence. It's all on the theory side now because you can't prove it on hardware. The hardware is not ready yet, but there is there is some evidence that's building that shows that for certain machine learning tasks, you can you can handle certain machine learning tasks more quickly. With, a, with quantum processing than with classical processing. And I won't get into the technical detail and not because I'm sort of, uh, you know, trying to do a smoke and mirrors thing here, but uh, I think if you were to talk to people at really reputable places, let's say at, 
you know, IBM research or at, at Amazon or, or in academia and, and talk to people who are doing quantum machine learning, they would kind of point out, hey, look, these, these look like we can, you know, the idea is to solve certain problems in exponentially or quadratically fewer steps. And it looks like this part of this machine learning workflow here, we could get that kind of a speed advantage or a processing advantage. Yeah, I, you know, there's, um, I interviewed Travis Humboldt at the Oak Ridge uh, National Laboratories. He's, okay. he's, and, and I was really surprised at how broad his view was of quantum and, and where it could be applied or quantum information science. And then yeah, you can do translational research to into really practical problems and I thought he was pretty positive overall, right? In fact, I, I did a recent Forbes article where I interviewed uh, 11 quantum experts, and now you'll be in my little group when I do- uh... Twelfth Disciple, great. <laughs> and I asked for predictions for 2023 and 2030, and I would say by and large, everybody was agreeing that it's gonna, it's, it's real, and we're gonna have some kind of universal quantum at some point. Maybe there's a little bit of disagreement when it's going to happen, but there's there's this feeling it's going to it's it, it's occurring, and there's narrow applications now, and it's going to get much broader as time goes on, right? I mean, I you, I I believe you're on that sort of same spectrum, right? I, I would yeah, I would say if someone asked me about things that will likely happen in 2023 and by 2030, I think in 2023. Um, it would certainly, it's, there will be, I, I think one of the vendors, and I don't know which one, but I think there will be, you know, incremental improvement in hardware. And I, I'm kind of like hard pressed to think within the next 12 months and 14 days or whatever, what, if there's anything that will actually be seminal that'll happen in 2023. I mean, certain groups will build larger processors, but I'm not sure if we'll see any particular, certainly not a practical milestone um, achieved in terms of like practical quantum advantage. I think though, there will be perhaps some interesting further developments on the hardware side. There's just so much investment going on and there's really, there's 55 hardware vendors that are competing <laughs> against each other. So, so statistically speaking, the chances are one or more of those will have, um, you know, interesting advances. What I do think will happen before 2030, I do think that we will have practical quantum advantage. I think it will be on the chemistry simulation side. So more on the molecular dynamics, electron interactions. So basically to be more specific, it would, I think what will happen if, if we have a couple hundred very, very high quality qubits, just a couple hundred, I think with as few as a couple hundred, very, very high quality qubits, I think that we would be able to um, shunt off some of the workflow um, for chemistry simulation problems onto such a processor as part of a, you know, a GPU driven workflow. And in particular, what it would relate to is, is approximating um, engineering properties of candidate molecules that might make their way into a compound that becomes a new material or a new drug. In other words, a material with with new properties, let's say you want uh, you want to develop a synthetic fiber that is more flame retardant than the competitors. That's a property. That's a performance property of a material. And uh, to to achieve that, 
you could do a lot of uh, a kind of like design with with those materials, or you could try to do that uh, using chemistry simulation, using simulation in the same way that you use a wind tunnel or you used to use wind tunnels to uh, observe airflow over a wing. And now you can do a lot of that computationally with computational fluid dynamics. In the same way, obviously, in, in material design and in drug discovery, a lot of compute power is used. And the, the reason that I think, um, and it's not just me, it's me listening to the people I perceive as being the smartest in this industry. The reason that it seems like this will be the first place to get quantum advantage is that the fundamental building block of a quantum processor is a qubit and a qubit behaves very similarly you know, to, to an electron or an atomic particle. And so really you're using these physical devices on a quantum processor to mimic what's happening in this physical system of electrons and atoms um, and so, so it's a very efficient use of that hardware. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of my bet. Certainly well, well ahead of 2030, I think that will happen. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a very strong alignment between sort of natural, uh, nature-based problems and the things that occur in simulation and then what a quantum computing, uh, computer is really good at, right? I mean, it's yes. like a, a real uh, harmony in terms of uh, solving those kind of problems. Earlier, I mentioned the Quantum Economic Development uh, Consortium. If you could just say a few words about that, because you are on the governing board and what your mission is and what you hope, you know, what this consortium, what, what you hope to achieve with the consortium. Yeah. So the, the QEDC was established about four and a half years ago um, through an act of Congress. It was one element of uh, of a of a of a law that was um, put in place and uh, the mission of the QEDC is to help to pull together industry private sector industry uh, in its quest to uh, develop this technology and so what it's really meant to be is an advocacy uh, forum for that for that industry group it's meant to help stimulate uh, the technology development. It's meant, so when you think about fundamentally, if you were a private sector company and you say, well, should I join the QEDC? Um, the resources at hand are, um, first of all, there, there are technical uh, advisory committees that are set up to handle um, various tasks that you can get involved with, like Quantum for National Security, um, there's a, there's a law tack that's focused on things like export control. Uh, there's a, a, a use case uh, group that, that studies uh, use case. And so what you have, you mentioned collaboration. So it's a forum to allow groups with common interests to explore possible applications or to look at, uh, to try to understand impending export control regulation or to try to understand where sources of government funding will be through various awards, contracts, or grants, where those might be coming from. Um, so, so all of those things are happening operationally within the QEDC through regularly scheduled meetings. Um, and in addition to that, kind of the meta reason that companies join is it's a great source of business development. It really, at the end of the day, you're looking for partners, you're looking for customers, you're looking for vendors, 
and they all kind of congregate within that group. Um, and so, yeah, I've been on the, it initially was called the governing board and there's nine members of the governing board. And then the, the name of that, that group, that body was changed from governing board to steering committee, which is what it is now. And I'm still uh, effectively on it until the end of the year. But uh, uh, so that will have been a four year run. And so I was really, really happy to be able to be a part of that uh, at the inception of this to see how a consortium gets put together and what it takes to make it effective. But that's the mission. The mission of the QEDC is to help be an advocate to all of these uh, companies that are involved in the development of quantum technology. And there are precedents for that. If you look at other nascent technologies, the government has, um, and when, it, when, when I say, okay, it's for the private sector, um, but it was really instigated by the government and in particular by the Department of Commerce. So within the Department of Concert, within the Department of Commerce, uh, there's an organization called NIST, which is the standards and technology uh, body. And it's actually NIST that um, provided the initial startup funding for the QEDC. And the head of the QEDC originally was a guy named Joe Bros, who um, is now with IBM. He's a senior, senior executive at IBM. And the head now is a woman named Celia Mertzbacher, uh, who's just a really exceptional like leader. And she's uh, took over from Joe and is continuing to build this. Um, so that's what the QEDC is. And for anyone who's, for any company, uh, large or small, that's interested in quantum technology, I think this is a very um, cost-effective and valuable organization to join. I really think that um, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and it's really an outgrowth of this National Quantum Initiative Act, right? In, correct, uh, correct. 2018, right? Which has more funding, actually, for quantum uh, information science, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Since you're at the confluence of so many different kinds of uh, hardware initiatives and so on, are you willing to kind of put the <laughs> uh, your finger out and say, you know what, I believe this one's a little bit stronger than this, and maybe this is, or or maybe that's too risky for you? It's not. Um, here's what I would say: there are you're talking about hardware approaches to building a quantum computer, right? Right. You know, like a cold atom versus yeah, gonna, you know, yeah. So I think. Um, there are there are technical challenges with each of those and 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 they're unique challenges and i am not in a position i don't think there are many people in the world in, in the world if any who could objectively if it's possible to be objective look at all of those technology approaches and like pick a definite near-term winner and long-term winner but i would say a couple of things i do think that there will be um a couple of near-term winners with a particular technology approach that may not scale up into the millions of qubits and will be displaced. So I think, I think in the near term, it looks like there's at least an opportunity. I think that the most mature technology is superconducting qubits. Um, there have been um, superconducting quantum interference devices that have been built for the last 30 or 40 years uh, so that's using superconducting materials and that technology. So that's that's a more mature technology. And actually, if you look broadly around the world, 
at how much money is being spent on these different approaches, I think superconducting qubits are, are really still the dominant. That's where most of the money's going. So if you think there's a correlation between um, technology development and money invested in a technology, it looks like it looks like superconducting qubits certainly have a head start. And then the next most mature technology is ion traps. There's fewer players in ion traps, but it is a, a comparatively well understood. Again, I'm not technical, but it's comparatively well understood and, and somewhat more mature, less mature, I think, than superconducting qubits. Um, and then there are cold and neutral atoms, which have lots of promise and lots of potential. And you've seen the ability to at least fairly quickly scale up to kind of large arrays of qubits. Um, now, their, their, their next challenge, of course, will be to take these qubits and form useful logic gates out of for circuit model machines and circuit model algorithms. Um, but they certainly have demonstrated this, this ability to kind of scale. And then, and then beyond that, the um, photonics is seen by a lot of people as having uh, the most or among the most promise for, uh, for building large-scale fault-tolerant machines. And that technology is, you could argue it's less or more developed than, than the others, but um, there are also fewer players on the photonic side, but it does look like that has a lot of promise. The more esoteric thing that really um, that really isn't uh, isn't yet um, being built out in a deliberate quantum computing system program, like it's just not advanced enough, are spin qubits, um, which are which is probably the close. I guess it's kind of the closest thing you'll be able to get to that is as kind of a solid state machine. Uh, so truly solid state. And, and like Intel is one of the players in spin cube. It's not surprisingly because they have all the semiconductor technology. So I guess, you know, what we, uh, I don't want to necessarily name names because uh, first of all, I could be very wrong. Um, and secondly, I don't want to prejudice uh, any, any groups because I think, I think all of the hardware companies out there are run by, extremely highly qualified gifted scientists. I mean, I think there's a lot of great brain power. So it's hard to say who might be a dark horse and come out. But what I've just rattled off are kind of the, in my mind, the technology readiness levels. And it does seem like the the, the most, the highest TRL level does seem to be in superconducting qubits. And uh, the question is how, how large they can actually scale over time. The most scalable technologies are the ones that are perhaps a little less, uh, a little less mature right now. You know, it's interesting. And then there's these really exotic areas like the topological, some of the topological research. And I interviewed this researcher with uh, pristine graphene, where they're getting really interesting <laughs> uh, characteristics that, if they can harness it in some way, maybe. Uh, uh, could be a room temperature quantum computing, but that's those are like outliers, right? Your thoughts right. on some of that? They're outliers. You're right, and that's why I don't know if you can even group them as um, a technology approach that has big momentum behind it and an engineering team and a hardware team behind it yet. But that is fascinating. Clearly, that's the kind of vision that's the most interesting. It's to imagine quantum processors that are literally could 
you know, it sounds fanciful and irresponsible to suggest, but at some point in the future, if, if you go 500 years out, look, look 500 years ahead or 100 years ahead, it seems likely that we will have developed quantum technology far enough so you'll have a room temperature, very small quantum processor that's, that's just a chip. And I, I don't know if we'll get there in 20 years, 40 or 100 or 200, but if you go far enough out, you, you, will, you can get comfortable imagining that, that we will get to that point. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've got an iPhone 14 uh, Pro Max, right? So let's say it's an iPhone uh, 200 Pro Max, and and it, it, that even isn't even in a case, and and it has a hybrid technology of digital supercomputing, and, and like mine has an 816 Bionic chip with what uh, uh, 16 billion transistors or something can do 17 trillion operations per second, I think, right? But can you imagine a quantum something in there as well? <laughs> Just imagine this. Imagine that um, certainly imagine the processing can be done, you know, in that iPhone 200 that you described. Quantum processing can be done. It'll, it will probably complement, you know, a CPU, right. whatever that is. But, but in addition, right now, when you do all the locational services stuff, you're taking, um, you know, you've got an antenna that's receiving inputs from GPS satellites, right? Well, with quantum sensing, uh, quantum, quantum metrology, you know, the timing and, and precision navigation, um, you'll have a sensor that doesn't need uh, satellites. It's kind of like an inertial navigation system. And then for, for data transfer, you can have quantum technology. And so you could have really, you know, at some point there will be a, a fully quantum iPhone. This is way out in the future, right? This is, this is probably at a point in the future where... Uh, you know, Apple Apple has been acquired by uh, I don't know something like uh, you know so what was the name of the company that that George Jetson worked for Spacely <laughs> Spacely Semiconductor something like that you know that'll be a, a twenty trillion dollar company that'll have swallowed Apple by that time. Yeah, it's it's good to be sort of fanciful, right? I just, be, yeah. I just have a few more questions. Um, you you just came off this wonderful conference. It's amazing, right? Everybody should attend your conference uh, in December. Can you can you give me some takeaways from that conference where you go, wow, that's really awesome? And then and then I'll have a, one final question after that. Yeah. So first of all, the conference is called Q2B, the Q2B conference. You can Google for Q2B conference, and you'll you'll get a hit. It takes place um, in the first week in December every year in Santa Clara. It will also be in Paris for the first time next year. And we'll do it every year on the 3rd and 4th of May. And it will be in Tokyo on the 18th through the 20th of July. And, and the purpose of Q2B is to pull together all of the stakeholders in quantum computing into one room for three days every year and to get them to focus on application discovery. So it's really the potential future users of the technology and the makers of the technology that get together. And you really need all those stakeholders in place. Um, to be frank, this year, this was the sixth year that we've held it. We, uh, and by the way, I make the point that in those six years, we have grown, uh, it's actually been five years, we have six editions, but over five years, uh, we've grown 300%. Uh, so it's really it's really picked up, and it's the largest quantum conference. The biggest takeaway is back to what I said. Actually, it's this attendance was up twenty twenty two percent, which was very good. 
um, more and more sponsors of the conference, larger tracks. But it was very, the difference this year was it was very pragmatic, very focused on tangible results. There wasn't any hype at all or very, very little. It was all this methodical, okay, here's this technical problem I have, or here's this business problem I have. The, the biggest difference was that mood, that uh, anxiety and nervous energy uh, and all that was kind of like out of the room. And it's it's in that Gartner hype, hype curve, we had kind of crested the top, perhaps right when SPACs were trading at the highest, I, I don't know, but but we're kind of in, we're kind of on that down. And that doesn't mean that the technology is not advancing. The technology is advancing, but the the amount of hype around the technology has reduced. Yeah. So that's a, a long answer to your question. I know you had one more. I, I just want to reflect too. I'm Canadian and, and I believe BBC Capital was there. Um, um, and they've invested in Xanadu here, the photonic-based uh, quantum computing. So I thought that was really interesting uh, for, and, and that's a Canadian government uh, organization, right? Right. The You're right. And we're very, very grateful for their sponsorship. And um, the Dutch government was also there. Now, in the case of Canada and the U.S., there are, this is why it's always important when you think about quantum technology, if you really want to see like how everything is connected, you have to look beyond that and look at all the intergovernmental connections right. across every area of government and all the economic ties. And then you can understand why this latest iteration of Canadian American collaboration is, is like very natural. It's not necessarily like seminal. There's, there's lots of things that those two governments do together. Um, and it does happen that Canada in particular for a couple of reasons um, about 20, 25 years ago, took some steps to really try to mobilize in, in you know, in quantum technology at, at the university and lab and academic level. So they will be very strong um, going forward, yeah. And the last question is, you know, um, you're really, as I mentioned, at a confluence of so much. And so what are your recommendations to the audience? What are some final insights or action items that you want to give to the audience? I think I think what the audience should try to do, if they really want to follow what's actually happening, I think the audience should try very hard to identify a couple of sources of information that they think um, are reliable, um, conduits of information about what's really, really happening in the space. If you, for instance, Stephen, are making it kind of your life's work or part of your life's work to try to circulate factual information around the state of technology development, like what's really happening, and, and to focus specifically on practical things that are happening practically, it's too hard for most people out there uh, to figure out okay, is this research paper that University X published, is this really going to change everything? It, it would be very difficult for anyone who's not highly technical to, to that, that's inscrutable stuff. So I think my advice would be for people to, to, to figure out one, two, or three sources of information on quantum computing that they think it are, is trustworthy and that is practically oriented, that is not too heavy into science and esoterica, but it's really distilling, okay, what's practically significant about this. 
and they should keep latched on to those sources of information for the next five or 10 years. And that, that will, that'll be really guidepost, I think. Well, Matt, you know, I've done over 20 interviews uh, within the past uh, couple of years with quantum specialists, or we talk about quantum computing. You've actually come across as probably the most practically minded with, with some really thoughtful, uh, you know, ideas and, and uh, evaluations. And I thought that was just amazing. So uh, thank you for coming in today and sharing so many insights with our audience and, and from such a wonderful background as well. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I, I really do. Anything our company achieves, it's it's through these amazing people that we have. I really appreciate you taking time to help put um, our company on the spotlight for a little bit, and we'll try not to disappoint you. And I hope uh, we can talk again in a year or two when when uh, when we have practical. Let's see if we can get practical quantum advantage here, and and you and I can catch up again. But I wish you all the best, and thanks a lot. And, and again, thank you. Okay. Bye. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.